0: Episode 10 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast takes off now. What is going on, Aviation Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot Podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I'm your host. I am finally back from my two-week trip in China. I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to upload when I was out there, but we have some great episodes lined up for you on the way. We have Captain Snoopy today. We have I Am the Drizzle coming up, and we have Pilot Wagner, Combat Learjet, and Airline Pilot Memes. I can't wait to share those interviews with you, and they're going to be coming up in the next couple weeks, so please stay tuned for that. And big things for us, we hit 4,000 followers on Instagram, mainly thanks to you you guys. have been awesome you guys have been super supportive i love the dms i love the comments i love the reviews that you've been leaving on our itunes page and a major shout out to pilot maria for finding our podcast and giving us a couple shout outs if you want to hear her story go ahead and let her know let's try to get on the podcast so if you hear this go ahead and dm pilot maria and let her know that we want to interview her also don't forget that we have our wing boss giveaway going on right now all you need to do is make sure you follow us on instagram at pilot to pilot and leave us a review on our itunes page we're going to select someone to win a very cool Wing Boss hat. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go ahead and check out their Instagram at WingBossTF and you can check out their website in the link and you can win an awesome hat from there. We have 31 reviews so far and I love reading your guys' reviews. It is so cool to hear the support and the feedback from you guys and go ahead and leave a review and you never know, by the end of the month, we'll be choosing a winner to win that cool hat. And with that let's get started with today's episode today we are talking with cody martz aka captain snoopy cody is currently in the army where he flies blackhawks he's also a trained air traffic controller has his multi-engine fixed wing license and is working on a single engine Fixed wing. This kid has done everything you can possibly do in the aviation industry, it seems like, and he's only 24. He's a, a great story to learn from to see how he decided to get into aviation and where it is taken to now. Can't wait to share this. And some of the things that we talk about in this is just why he decided to join the army, how he was lucky enough to get an air traffic controller slot. We talk about how he paid for his training and if he was able to use his GI bill to help him out. We talk about some things to get used to when he made the switch when becoming a pilot from air traffic control. We talk about some things that bug controllers that pilot Let's do we talk about how difficult and different flying a helicopter is than an airplane and we talk about why he would rather have an engine failure in a fixed wing plane rather than a helicopter this is just some of the things that we touch on this episode and it is just a great one i can't wait to share it with you guys if you enjoyed today's episode please let us know let us know via dm comment on our instagram page at pilot the pilot or leave us a review on our itunes page we just want to create the best content we can possibly make for you guys and your feedback really helps and without further ado cody martz Hey, Cody, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast.
1: Hey, how you doing, Justin?
0: I'm doing well, man. I'm glad I could get you on here. I can't wait to tell your story.
1: Awesome. I'm really glad you invited me.
0: Yeah, man. So let's go ahead and get started. What got you into aviation?
1: What got me into aviation is uh, kind of a coincidence. I uh, was kind of looking for a direction to go in life, and I decided to join the Army as my dad is in the Army. And one of the jobs they offered was air traffic control. I wasn't too sure what air traffic control was until I Googled it, but it looked really interesting. So I went ahead and joined, and then I was doing air traffic control and I fell in love with it. And then I saw all the airplanes and I thought they were having a great time. So I decided to take flight lessons and I completely fell in love with everything about aviation.
0: That's really cool. So you started with ATC and the Army. And is that something you were obviously able to choose that? You didn't get assigned that, right?
1: No, I was very fortunate. Uh, Sometimes the recruiters have a certain amount of jobs that they can pick from. And fortunately, the day that I went in, air traffic control was available. So I was able to pick that.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. Sounds like you got a little bit lucky there too. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I really did. Shoot, I'll take dumb luck in aviation any day. Sometimes it comes down to having a lot of luck.
1: (laughs) Luck is better than skill any day. Yeah, for sure. So uh, tell me a
0: little about air traffic control in the military. Did you, how was the training? What was all the training like?
1: So the training is really fast paced and it's really just the basic fundamentals of air traffic control and you learn more as you get to the actual facility that you're going to work at. And then they build onto that and teach you all the tricks and stuff like that.
0: Would you say, is it similar to normal ATC training? Did anyone tell you that? Or is it a little bit more fast paced, like you said?
1: I know a couple of air traffic controllers that have transitioned from Army to FAA, and they said it's a little bit different uh, because they are more apt to dealing with fast movers like jets and stuff like that in the FAA. Whereas we deal more with like helicopters and then we'll throw in C-17s and C-130s every once in a while. Sweet.
0: That's awesome. Where did you work at for
1: the Army? I was at Fort Bragg and I worked the radar facility for uh, the restricted area uh, here on Fort Bragg. So that was coordinating all the helicopters and the C-130s, C-17s, doing pair drop operations as well as coordinating that through artillery that was firing into impact zones up to like 29,000 feet.
0: That's pretty cool. That sounds awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, a lot was going on on that radar screen. <laughs> That's really cool.
0: So were you the guy when some random private pilot ventured into the restricted area, you had to call on guard and let them know they're in the the wrong area?
1: Yes. Uh, some of the controllers would also uh, give them a phone number, uh, but I, I wasn't one of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give the phone number out.
0: That's nice to know that there are some good controllers out there that know that mistakes can happen.
1: Absolutely. Being a pilot definitely helped with that because there's no line on the ground. You just accidentally go into the restricted area if you're flying something like a Cub or anything that doesn't have avionics. Or especially a G430 or something.
0: Right. Yeah. You said G430. Uh, My company, we fly Pilates and caravans and we're still rocking G430s and G530s. Those
1: are awesome. Those are the fundamentals of aviation. Oh, yeah, man.
0: That's really cool. So cool. So do you have any cool stories about being air traffic control in the army?
1: One of the coolest things I think we did was have fighter jets come from Cherry Point and they put the JTACs on the ground which are kind of like the forward observers, and so in a combat mission, they'll actually paradrop in across enemy lines, and they'll radio uh, like positions of uh, places that need to be attacked, and the fighter jets will come in and they'll attack it, and the JTACs will let them know if they were successful or not. Oh, and, that's pretty cool. And they were practicing that in the restricted area Uh, so it was was really cool to deal with them because you realize they have like a true purpose and a true mission that they're training (laughs) for sure
0: (laughs) and they got a lot of firepower coming too a lot of firepower
1: sometimes it would be a flight of three or four and it's just amazing to think what they could actually do
0: what are the real dangers of say a private pilot actually flying into a restricted area? Like what are some of the things that actually could happen to him? Like is there a chance that they could actually get shot down by like an errant missile or anything like that? Or is it just kind of to make sure there are no issues at all?
1: I think the biggest danger for a private pilot not going into a restricted area is small arms fires like M4s and RPGs and things like that. Right, because those they have so many ranges uh, on the restricted area where they're shooting constantly all day long, and bullets travel pretty far. So a low flying pilot, maybe a thousand or two thousand feet, who is going into PK Airpark or BQ1 Carthage to get barbecue, and they get turned around, and they're getting low to the ground to try to find the airport. A stray bullet could easily puncture like a, a fuel tank or something. Or even worse, hit an engine and uh, they only have one. (laughs) Yes.
0: That would be terrifying. I'm sure a bullet would do some pretty significant damage to like a Cub or a small Cessna. So that would not be good.
1: No, it wouldn't. <laughs> and it's funny
0: you mentioned BQ1 because I've been there before and I know that it's a very hard airport to find. And I know that there's a lot of yes. circling and a lot of like flying over. And sometimes you go, you might venture a little bit too far. So it's important to make sure that you stay out of those restricted areas.
1: Yes, BQ1 definitely makes you work for that barbecue they have.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. I heard they uh, shave the trees down though coming in a final. So I heard it's not as hard anymore as it once was.
1: Yes. When I went in there last week, uh, they definitely did shave the trees down a lot, which helped finding it.
0: That's good, because like I said, that is one of the hardest airports I've ever had to find. And then you get your reward of landing on a very, very tiny runway.
1: Absolutely, because not only finding it, then you have to land with a 50-foot obstacle and a short runway.
0: Yeah, but the food is worth it. If anyone is ever in that part of North Carolina, it's called BQ1, and it's some of the best barbecue and really great place to go.
1: Yes, and they're not sponsoring us yet, for sure. No, yeah, not sponsoring (laughs) it.
0: If they want to sponsor, by all means, but I'll take free barbecue for life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think we both will.
0: I know, right? Well, cool. So you're in air traffic control, and then... You kind of saw like the whole aviation system around you, and you kind of felt called to get into flying. Or how did that work out?
1: So it's really interesting. I was working uh, radar for most of the time, but then my buddies they would be working at tower airports, and I was just around aviation in general. And I always wondered how it looked like on the other side of the microphone. So I, I went down to Fayetteville to All American Aviation Services. I definitely highly recommend them. And I took my first uh, flying lesson and I fell in love with it.
0: What were you flying?
1: I was flying a Piper Cherokee. Most of my private time is in a Piper Cherokee. Cool.
0: So you flew out of Fayetteville. And was this all funded on your own while you're in the military or did the military help pay for it?
1: Yes. So the private pilot was all on my own. Uh, And then later on in my flying career, uh, the Army was able to pay for some of it. But uh, for most of my civilian flight training was out of pocket.
0: Are you a rare breed, or are there a lot of Army air traffic controllers that want to get into flying as well?
1: There is definitely a lot of air traffic controllers in the Army that enjoy flying because I would take some of my coworkers up, and they would absolutely fall in love with it. And some of my coworkers even started to get into flying on the weekends and stuff and one of my uh, good friends he actually is going and trying to become an airline pilot as well from air traffic control uh, definitely go follow him uh, fly guy hp
0: well sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. It's uh you don't really like think about I mean, I guess all a lot of air traffic controllers are in aviation, they talk to a lot of planes, they talk to a lot of people, and I'm sure they kind of have questions like what's it like to be on the other side, what's what's it like to fly in busy airspace and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I think it's a, a great thing. And one of the things that I had to get used to was as an air traffic controller, all the pilots were always cool, calm and collected. And then when I first started flying, uh, it was in the summertime. And there was a lot of turbulence. And I I was not expecting that, especially in a small Cherokee and the North Carolina heat. So uh, I really had a newfound respect for uh, what the pilots were doing.
0: Flying in North Carolina in the summertime is not that much fun.
1: So many times my head's hit the ceiling.
0: Oh, yeah. Your head will hit the ceiling a lot. You might, you might as well wear a helmet when you're flying down there because it's going to happen.
1: Yeah. No matter how much you tighten down that seatbelt, nothing helps.
0: My favorite's when you try to change your frequency, like you try to either go to COM2 <laughs> or switch frequencies, and you like go to try to hit it, and then all of a sudden the bump comes and you miss it, and you'll be you'll try three or four times to like keep hitting that button, and you'll miss it every time. You got to like hold your hand steady, put your hand on top of the airplane to hold you down, so you can just hit that button.
1: That's another thing that I thought was funny about uh, some pilots who choose to get the seven hundred and fifty, the touchscreen. Yeah, I never I never understood that because turbulence hits and you're just pressing everything. That's
0: very true. I guess it's one of those things you don't think about. You you get caught up in how cool a touchscreen looks. You don't think about (laughs) the practicality of a touchscreen and how it might not be the best idea. Exactly. So cool. So you decided to do your training the civilian way and you did that for your private pilot license and your instrument, right? Yes, I did. Cool. What was your training like for that? Did you enjoy your private pilot training and your instrument training? Did you find one harder than the other?
1: The private pilot and the instrument, thankfully, because of my air traffic control training, was a little bit easier than uh, some people would have it just because I was already used to all the rules and the regulations. I was already used to knowing how to read approach plates just from issuing instrument approaches to pilots as air traffic control. So I was able to focus more on the actual flying mechanics and uh, not have to divide my time between flying mechanics and necessarily studying the private pilot knowledge.
0: Right. That definitely helps to have some, especially when you're transferring an instrument, because that's one of the hardest things is trying to figure out holds, trying to figure out approach plates, trying to figure out all those rules and regulations. So you having that knowledge already, it would definitely separate you and help you out.
1: Absolutely. And it was still, even with all that knowledge, it was still a little bit of a learning curve to jump into the instruments and have to learn how to do holds and start the timing and everything like that even though i've already seen it so many times it was just a completely new ball game when you're behind the controls
0: right and it's one thing knowing what to do when you're on the ground but then applying it when you're in the air (laughs) as well it's two completely different things you can load all these approaches and fly all these approaches on flight simulator but can be a little bit different once you get in the air yourself and you get in the actual instrument conditions like i get a little little freaky sometimes when you're first starting out
1: exactly because i would see uh some pilots make a wrong entry or something. And I would say to myself, why do they do that? Then I got in there and I was doing instrument approaches in actual conditions with the six pack. And all of a sudden, I would be like, wait, I just did a parallel when I should have done a teardrop. And I instantly regretted ever. Questioning those pilots in my head.
0: That's really funny. What kind of knowledge does an air traffic controller have about kind of the training of a pilot or for the IFR? Do they know just as much as a pilot does, or is there a little bit? Do they just know the basics? Like, what all are they taught?
1: So, they definitely know the basics how to read an approach plate, how to read the IFR sectionals and the supplements. But there are stuff that they still don't know. They don't really understand the amount of math that goes into it. And they don't understand the instruments that we're looking at and how how we're having to cut the HSI into three sections to figure out, hey, what type of injury should we be getting in right now?
0: Right. And I bet they probably don't understand that something like it can happen pretty fast too. Like, even though you're 10 miles away, depending on the airplane you're flying, that could be a minute, that could be 30 seconds, that could be. <laughs> so, you have to do all this at a very fast amount of time too.
1: Absolutely. I'm sure 10 miles in a Pilatus or a caravan goes by two to three times as quick as it does in a Cherokee.
0: Yeah. And even. 10 times faster and like an F-18 or an F-22. So.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah. I can only imagine with those guys. So uh, have you heard any funny stories at all sitting up with air traffic controllers about talking about what pilots do, or is there any one thing that really makes air traffic controllers mad?
1: <laughs> I would have to say one thing that could get on air traffic controllers nerves is if they continuously try to call the airplane and, uh, and the airplane doesn't respond. And then uh, they come back and they ask air traffic control, hey, did you forget about me? When air traffic control is is like, no, we called you three or four times and you just haven't been listening to the radio.
0: <laughs> That's really funny. I could actually, I, not myself, but when I, I fly all the time, fly at really weird hours and fly during the night. And I'm sure a lot of times some pilots are dozing off a little bit and they'll call <laughs> and you'll hear them call again and again and again. And then they go on guard. And they'll be like five minutes later, Be like, oh, uh, approach. This is uh, Cessna 1234 or radio contact. <laughs> like, we've been trying to
1: call you for 20 minutes. <laughs> and they're like, oh, sorry. I was off tuned to ATIS. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, sorry.
0: Yeah, we're having uh, some issues. <laughs> it's like, yeah, where are you? Yeah, issues that you can't keep your eyes open.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah, no, that's really funny. That, I could see that getting on your nerves. I could also see another thing is when you are really busy and you – and all of a sudden this new private pilot or the student pilot comes in and just takes so much time to say a very simple call. But for them, it's not simple because it's their first time being around busy airspace and they overthink it and kind of blabber it out. So I'm sure that can get kind of frustrating, too.
1: Yes, at first it did. And then uh, when I started flying, I understood it completely. So I definitely conveyed that to every air traffic controller that I came across. That I saw also got impatient. I, I would have to tell them like, "Hey, like these people are brand new. Remember when you were in ATC school and you first started talking on the radio? Right. How? Because we have the same problems when we go to air traffic control school. Most of us have never talked on a radio." So we key up as well in air traffic control school. And we're like, wait, we're supposed to actually know what we're saying before we key up. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, don't just have a hot mic for five minutes. <laughs> I think my favorite is when you have someone that is an air traffic controller that's training and you'll get like a really bad vector. And then all of a sudden, the guy that's training him will be like, no, no,
1: disregard, disregard. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll you'll hear the other voice come on and say, correction, apply the setting.
0: Yeah, that's really funny. And then every once in a while, they'll leave the hot mic on for a little bit like, you can't do that. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) oh, this makes me feel good.
1: Just so everyone in the airspace knows to be a little more patient.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. No, but uh, I think it goes both ways. I think pilots are patient with new controllers. And overall, I think controllers are good with pilots because, I mean, we're both there to look out for each other and help each other out. So it's necessary to be patient with one another.
1: Absolutely. Without one, the other wouldn't be there.
0: Yep, for sure. Yeah, when we're flying low approaches, it's very nice to have someone warn us about other traffic.
1: Yes, that's definitely good, especially when TCAS is picking up like a radio tower instead of another airplane.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure, that helps a lot. You did your civilian training, and you said you got your private pilot license, your instrument rating, and then what did you do after your instrument rating? Did you get your? Com- you said, did you get your commercial?
1: Yes. Uh, so right now I have, I'm kind of doing it backwards. I guess some people get their commercial single, then multi, and then maybe helicopter. Uh, I'm doing it backwards. I got my commercial helicopter, then I got my commercial multi, and then I'm thinking about going and getting my commercial single. <laughs>
0: oh, that's awesome. So talk to me a little about flying helicopters versus flying airplanes. Like what made you want to fly the helicopters?
1: So what made me want to fly helicopters is I already started flying airplanes and helicopters are basically unicorns, at least to me. They're just these mythical little creatures that zoom around treetop levels and for some reason they can hover. That was just amazing to me. So I was super excited to have the opportunity to fly helicopters, but I didn't realize the amount of stick and rudder skills, if you will, to be able to fly them, especially to hover, uh, because in an airplane you're always going at least what sixty knots. But in the helicopter, when you slow down to zero, you realize just how touchy the controls are.
0: Yeah, I've seen a couple new helicopter pilots kind of learn how to hover, and it is one of the scariest <laughs> things I've ever seen in my life.
1: <laughs> it, it is even scarier trying to learn how to hover. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm sure. But I heard it's a really cool like feeling which you can figure out how to hover and you can do that. I heard it's pretty cool.
1: Absolutely, it's just like anything else. You put in the hard work, you put in the dedication. It might only be. Hard work and dedication for five to 10 hours, and then you find the hover button, if you will. But once you find the hover button after five to 10 hours, it feels like a whole new world. You you feel so much more confident in the aircraft. That's
0: awesome. And it's really cool to see, too, because I mean, some of these landings can be very hard. And say, if you get into commercial helicopter flying and you get to land on rooftops and land on hospitals, I'm flying UPS out in Nebraska right now. And at this airport I'm at right now, there's a medevac team that flies a helicopter and they land on a mobile plane platform that's attached to a truck and i watched them come in and land and it was so cool and it was just like so dumbfounding to me that they can do this and i'm over here sitting in my fixed wing plane like he ain't gonna do that and he proved me wrong he put that thing on there perfectly it was really cool to see
1: it takes a lot of training to get to that level hundreds of hours
0: yeah and he did it in one try did it probably like 10 seconds he just flung the helicopter around came down put it down nice and (laughs) slow gently Turned it off, game over. I was like, Those okay. Those
1: medevac guys have so much experience.
0: And they're very skillful pilots too, which is cool.
1: They do a really, really good job and a really good mission.
0: I was talking to him. He's like, I fly through everything. The only thing I don't fly through is ice. It's like, doesn't matter, thunderstorm, low clouds, IFR, like we're going. We got to go save someone's life. So
1: that, That's really scary because I've definitely heard of a lot of medevac helicopters that go out at 2, 3 in the morning to backcountry road to pick up a car accident and unfortunately they get caught in the fog and turned around somehow and it's really unfortunate to hear that some of those don't go so well
0: yeah i no, it's one of the most dangerous types of flying that there is so it's definitely yeah the people that do that that risk their life to help others it's definitely awesome and commendable
1: my hat's off to them absolutely
0: what did you think the difference was from training military from training civilian was there a big difference was or was it pretty similar
1: I would absolutely say there's a difference because it seems like in the civilian world it was more based off far's rules regulations reading sectionals and in the military uh, that was a huge priority as well but what was a bigger priority was actually understanding the aircraft and the aircraft systems so we would have to memorize oil temperature levels and oil pressure and transmission pressure and temperatures and we would have to know all the numbers for everything all the gauges we'd have to have that memorized and in the civilian world it seems like it's mostly oh green yellow red and just know the colors
0: no for sure it's definitely kind of green yellow red and you're like oh well it's it's a little bit hotter the day but it's not just in yellow or if it goes in yellow you're like "Eh, i should probably talk to someone about that obviously (laughs) if it goes in red you need to get down on the ground because something's not right no, but I can imagine in the military craft, and especially in how expensive those helicopters are, that if anything isn't perfectly right, someone needs them to know because there's probably something extremely wrong going on or something could lead to something where they catch it very early, it'll be a lot cheaper to fix.
1: Yes, it seems like a domino effect. There's one thing that goes wrong, and it seems like if that's not taken care of immediately, another thing goes wrong, and it just it builds up really quickly.
0: So in the military, is it kind of similar to civilian? Where is it like you get your private, your multi, or your private, your commercial, your instrument, or is it kind of just like you learn how to fly all in one and you get one big check ride?
1: So we definitely have a lot of check rides. So it's kind of like the same as civilian. You learn the basics of flying for my pipeline that I went through. You learn how to hover. You learn how to do approaches. And then after you mastered that, a couple check rides, you mastered that. Then you went on to instruments and you took a couple check rides through that. And then you went to selection, you picked your aircraft, and then you went on to do your aircraft, uh, which was basically a type rating program after that.
0: What helicopter did you choose?
1: I chose the UH UH-60 Blackhawk.
0: Nice. What's it like flying a Blackhawk?
1: It's the most rewarding thing I've ever done before, just because the mission set, you're always taking passengers around who actually have a mission and they need to be there at a certain time. So you have to plan a route. That gets them there at the exact time that they want to be there, plus or minus 30 seconds. Plus or minus 30 seconds? Plus or minus 30 seconds. Wheels down. That's intense. (laughs) Yes. So a lot of planning goes into it. But when you do the mission and you check your clock and your wheels touch down and they get out on time, it's the most rewarding feeling.
0: But it's pretty stressful to have to do that.
1: It's stressful and it's rewarding at the same time. It's a good type of pressure.
0: So when you have a big old thunderstorm sitting in front of you, do you go around it or do you go through it to get them there on time?
1: You go around it and that's actually a big part of our training as well is contingencies because what if something pops up that blocks your route? It could be anything in a a different real life mission. So you have to plan deviating from the planned route and then getting back on the planned route later on in the route and actually still make it there on time. A lot of training goes into that.
0: So you got to find some kind of time to make up in that instance.
1: Absolutely. The FMS is definitely help with uh, getting there on time, typing in speeds and because you just type in the point you want to go to and it tells you what speed to go, just like the airlines have in their aircraft.
0: So Cody, what are some of the cooler places that you've flown to in your Blackhawk?
1: I think one of the coolest places that I've been to, and uh, it might be a little aviation geeky for me to say, but it would be Kitty Hawk for sure. First flight. And
0: when were you in Kitty Hawk?
1: I was in Kitty Hawk about two weeks ago, actually.
0: And you know, what's really funny is that I was at Kitty Hawk two weeks ago taking pictures of the monument when I saw a Black Hawk overfly me. And I'm guessing that there was a good chance that it was you.
1: It, it was actually us because we parked on the side of the runway and the grass, and we actually walked up to the monument, the huge tall. It kind of looks like a, a VOR. It does, uh, you're right, <laughs> on top of a little tiny sand hill. It does. <laughs> and then uh, then we went down and we actually saw the little marker stones for each flight that they did.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I must have just missed you because as soon as I got out of my car, they were starting up the. You guys were starting up and getting ready to take off. And I was like, that sounds like a a lot bigger jet than what should actually be landing there. So I was kind of like, what is that?
1: Wow, that is definitely a small world.
0: Like you said, aviation is a very small community, and that's pretty crazy. So I have seen you fly around, which
1: is
0: (laughs) me not trying to be a creep.
1: No, yeah. Definitely more normal than some of the things on Instagram. Oh, yeah. No, for sure.
0: But yeah, that's hilarious. That's kind of cool that I've seen you take off. It was a pretty good takeoff, you know. I got a couple notes for you, but uh, I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah, give them to you later. We'll I don't want to embarrass you on the on the internet. So
1: yeah, we'll debrief it later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, Kitty Hawk's pretty cool. If anyone, any kind of av geek, gets the opportunity to go there, it is really cool just to kind of get a visualization of what they went through, where they flew, and how they did it.
1: Yeah, just to put yourself a hundred years ago and look at the pictures and look at the aircraft that they were flying, and just imagine in your head. Would I have done that? And I honestly don't think I had the nerves to do that, to fly that airplane right off that hill like they did. I I, I don't think I could have done it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I completely agree with you. I don't have the nerves to do that either. And then it's really cool to see the markers that they have actually laid out to see how far they actually went. It's like one, two, and three. You're like, wow, they didn't really get very far at all. Then all of a sudden four, you're like, dang, good for them. (laughs) Like they actually did Yeah, they went really far. (laughs) And like I said, anyone that has a chance to go to Kitty Hawk, go check it out. It's kind of a, a hard place to get to, but if once you can find your way there, it's definitely worth it. So cool. Do you have any other cool places you've been to? I know we talked about BQ1 before in Carthage, the barbecue restaurant. Have you gotten to fly to there a lot?
1: Uh, I've flown there a couple times. Uh, Whenever our missions allow us to have like an hour or two break in between picking people up, then we're able to go and shut down and grab a quick bite. So BQ1... It's definitely a great place. PK Air Park uh, is down south of the restricted area by Fayetteville. And they have a grill right on the runway. And it's amazing. People go out there on the weekends and they skydive. So it's a lot of fun. Fly in, watch skydivers, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, my favorite thing at BQ1 is just sitting on their little patio and watching the planes take off and land.
1: It's the greatest thing.
0: Yeah. Make sure you bring cash though, because I don't know if they change it by now, but if you don't bring cash, you're be washing dishes to pay for your food.
1: <laughs> I actually showed up there one time uh, and I, I was pretty hungry because I didn't have cash yeah. and uh, didn't have ATM.
0: So yeah, uh, back to kind of helicopters. Um, I say this now because I've never flown in a helicopter before. I don't really have an interest in flying in helicopters, but that's only because what happens when it stops turning. Like, What happens when the propeller stops? How does a helicopter stay in the air and not just fall to the ground?
1: So oddly enough, as scary as it sounds, that is the most fun thing to do in a helicopter. It's called an auto rotation. It's when you have an engine failure, you basically are a paperweight and you fall to the ground. And at the last second, you pull in the remaining power that you have that's spinning with the rotor. So the rotor acts as a big fan the last time you pull in all the power. So it kind of cushions you right before you touch the ground. So you're coming in at 12, 1300 feet a minute. Then you pull in your last bit of power, which bleeds off the rotor speed, and that cushions you down. And if you do it right, then you just kind of slide onto the runway.
0: You don't just kind of slam down and kill the helicopter. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's only if you do it the wrong way <laughs> the wrong way that's if you bleed off the rotor too high yeah or too low which i'm
0: sure happens a lot because there's probably some guys that try to do it as close to the ground as possible and other guys that kind of freak out in that situation and they're like "Uh oh and they just do what they need to do way too soon and then it actually hurts them rather than help them
1: absolutely i can say all day oh in training it's easy to do it's a lot of fun but When it actually happens in real life, I'm sure it's a completely different experience.
0: So since you have training in both, would you rather have an engine failure in a fixed wing plane or a helicopter?
1: I would absolutely rather one in a fixed wing airplane.
0: Gives you a little bit more time. You're not just a falling rock.
1: Yes, you have so much more time. You can come down at 500 feet per minute, whereas in a helicopter, Whatever you see in front of you, that's where you're going. Whatever's in your chin bubble, that's what you're going.
0: So cool. So now you are in the Army and you're flying Blackhawks. What are your future plans? Do you want to stay in the Army forever? Or are you looking to get out of the Army and fly fixed wing, fly commercial helicopters, or you fly, say, uh, meta flights like uh, we were talking about earlier?
1: So it's really complex because there's perks and every path. Uh, if I stay in the military, they have a great retirement and they have a great sense of purpose and mission. Uh, if you get out and go to the airlines, it's a great quality of life. Uh, once you start to get more senior, you get to spend 15 to 20 days at home with your family. Uh, it really depends. I definitely like the idea of, uh, airline flying, uh, because you get to see really cool locations and you get to travel a whole lot further than you do in a helicopter.
0: Helicopters are a little bit more limited than what a plane is.
1: Normally, we stay within the state in a helicopter, but uh, you can travel the world in an airplane.
0: What is the kind of the commercial, like outside of the military, what does commercial helicopter flying look like? Like, is there a biz or a lot of jobs for people? Does it pay well? How do they go about finding employment once they get out?
1: So, it all depends on hours, just like fixed wing. If you have enough hours, probably around 3,000 to 3,500, you could get yourself a nice gig at a hospital, fly in medevac, comfortable life, a couple of days on, a couple of days off, and you're mostly on call at the hospital. And then they have other ones where you could get hired at 1,000 to 2,000 hours where you go down to Louisiana and you fly people to oil rigs and back. So that's a pretty cool job as well. Uh, And they fly the A-Stars for those which have the inflatable skids. Oh, cool. So if they have an engine failure or something, they just pop the inflatables underneath the aircraft and it just... Turns into a boat. <laughs> yeah, it's, I guess it's kind of like a boat.
0: <laughs> so are those the two main jobs that people usually do? Are there? Any, are there obviously, there's probably some odd jobs. Like you can fly for some kind of company that has a helicopter and stuff like that. But are those the two big
1: ones? Those are the two biggest ones. And then they also have other ones for guys who flew Chinooks. They have huge lumber companies up in the Pacific Northwest where they chop huge trees down. And then the Chinook will come in there, sling load the huge tree and fly it off to, I guess, a paper mill or something like that.
0: So these are civilian companies that own Chinooks?
1: Yes, a civilian uh, variant of a Chinook.
0: Okay, cool. I didn't even know there was something like that out there.
1: Yeah, no, it's really cool. So uh, these guys flying Chinooks, they can get out, fly basically the same aircraft and just do really cool missions.
0: Their propellers are so big, it blows my mind.
1: They're huge. And then you always think they're gonna mesh, but some for some reason the timing's just perfect so they don't contact.
0: There was once that they did a flyby. They flew the product probably- couple miles out in front of me. And there was three or four of them and kind of formation. And it was really cool to see. And you could just see that big old propeller just swinging in the air. And I was like,
1: Oh, wow. I could only imagine what that rotor wash would do to airplane.
0: No, I was far enough away that it wasn't an issue, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a bad news. And speaking of kind of rotor wash, when I was doing my training, I think it was like a rival. I want to say rival, but there was another flight school that was in some North Carolina airport and a helicopter was flying over. It was like a one fifty, And I think if I'm not mistaken, if I remember this correctly, the helicopter actually flipped over the plane and kind of. Wow. Whatever happened, somehow the, the plane just kind of caught the, the propeller wash and it didn't react well.
1: No, it definitely doesn't. I remember one time I was flying into Myrtle International in a Cherokee and I was following just a CRJ, I think it was a 700, 900. I'm not too sure. It was a CRJ. And uh, they said I was going to be okay for weight turbulence. But for some reason, I guess the wind shifted or, or something like that. And I was about three miles behind the CRJ and all of a sudden I hit the white turbulence and literally head hit the ceiling. Papers went flying around the cockpit, but, uh, thankfully I was able to keep the plane straight and level. And, uh, I definitely didn't descend any further than that. Yeah,
0: no, that's when you start putting more power. You're like, I need all the power I can possibly get right now. Power is my friend.
1: I could only imagine how bad it would be if you crossed maybe a mile behind the CRJ, because I was at three miles
0: Right, and like you said, you are in a, a Cherokee, and that's a CRJ. Imagine what it would have been if it would have been like a, a bigger airliner, too.
1: I feel like the wings would just fall right off, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's probably
0: a good chance. Unfortunately, I'm sure. But like you said, it's not a, not anything to take for granted, and definitely keep your distance if you can.
1: Absolutely, that's for sure.
0: It's cool to have these experiences and kind of like learn from them, and so you can tell other people. Like it's just crazy the the different experiences that pilots can go through and how. You sharing them can help other people kind of recognize a situation and how to get out of it.
1: I definitely believe it's better to learn from someone else's mistake than to make the same mistake yourself.
0: Oh, for sure. Because you never know how that one person's going to react in a situation. If they have heard about this before, then they'll know what to do. Kind of have it in the back of their mind a way to react because that's worked for someone else before.
1: Absolutely. Because even now when I'm on an approach and I'm following a big jet and I might be in a small plane, I definitely give them a lot of room to run.
0: Let them do their thing. Notice where they touch down do the appropriate landing or takeoff procedures.
1: Absolutely. Definitely land past where they touch down. Don't get anywhere near their weight turbulence.
0: No, yeah, stay away. All right, Cody, so you were in the Army and you were in the military. Was there any time that you were deployed at all?
1: Yes, um, I was deployed in 2012. Uh, my job was technically air traffic control, but when I got there, the air traffic control facilities were at max capacity, so they really had no place for me to go. So I ended up being on a security detail for one of the gates uh, at the base in Afghanistan. And at first, I was like, oh, I really wish I could have done air traffic control. But it turned out to be a good thing uh, because I was outside on the ground and I could see all like the F-18s, all the other fighter jets. They would just do low passes in their formations turn it at 60 degrees and just rip into the sky. Just all the cool stuff. Um, I probably lost some of my hearing from those afterburners because we we're that close to the airport.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, no, for sure. Just hearing any kind of military aircraft or any kind of plane just being close to them can blow your hearing out. So I, I would have to imagine that would have been tough on your ears.
1: Yes, I, I definitely wish I could go back and tell myself I should have wore like hearing protection or something like that.
0: That's not cool to be young and be deployed (laughs) wearing hearing protection. It's like, yeah, I don't need that. (laughs) It's the least of my worries right now. Yeah. Was the base on the airport or was the base a little bit farther away from the airport?
1: Yeah. So the airport, uh, it was at Kandahar, Afghanistan, and the airport was right in the middle of the base. So I was right on the outside of the base. So I was close enough to be able to see the airplanes coming off the departure end or approach end depending on the winds and it was truly a great experience and I definitely think that was one of the turning moments where I decided hey I want to look into see how it is to fly for the military
0: nice what was the hustle and bustle like at a airport like that was it just crazy nonstop every single day do they have kind of scheduled runs or how did that all work out
1: I couldn't tell if there was anything scheduled like day to day, but I definitely saw a lot of fighter jets coming in and out. Uh, Then they would have the contractors fly King Airs in and out. And then also they'd have the great C-17s fly in and out. I truly love the C-17s so much.
0: Yeah, every time I get to see a C-17, it's a good day. I like seeing those.
1: Yeah, if I was in the Air Force... I would have to fly the C-17. That would be my aircraft of choice.
0: It stinks that there's like that every single branch of the military can't fly the same planes, that they're all divvied up. But <laughs> I'm sure there's some <laughs> aircraft that the Air Force wishes they could fly that the Army has and vice versa.
1: Yeah, why can't the Army have C-17s, you know? know. Come on, Army, what
0: are you doing? I'm sure they're gonna be listening to this and be like, ah, we need C-17s, they're right.
1: This is gonna change the entire scheme of maneuvers and they're gonna get C-17s now. Yeah, you know, I do what I can, you know, it's just... <laughs> You're making magic happen. Over yeah. there. That's what it's doing. what we do, man.
0: That's just really cool. Like I can't even imagine just being around all those planes and all those people and just kind of seeing things work and kind of being, like you said, right on the front lines of a war and in a different country. It's got to be pretty cool.
1: It was truly a great experience. I think every experience, you make it what it is. And I, I feel like I truly enjoyed the time I had there because I, I enjoy seeing other cultures. I enjoy seeing how other people live. And I mean, you throw airplanes into it and it can't get better than that.
0: Yeah, it just makes it even better right there. Would you say that there are people in the military that want to fly but just don't have the chance? And then once they get out of the military, they are able to fly and start flying? Or do you think that if you want to fly in the military, you'll be able to fly right away?
1: I think as with anything, even with the airlines, with enough hard work and dedication, you're able to do anything you want to because it's all explained out just like just like the airlines. If you go online and you do a quick Google search, you come up to the Army Recruiter's website and it shows you the exact checklist that you need to apply for Army flight school. So whether you're in the Army or you're just a civilian, and you really want to fly for the army, they have a checklist on their website, right on their website. You print it off, you fill out all the documents that it has on the checklist, you email it in, and it's as simple as that. And then they let you know if you were accepted or not.
0: What kind of equipment? I don't, I mean, I might not know all of it, but I don't know if anyone else knows. What are all the types of aircraft that you guys have?
1: Well, we have sized down our Air Force and Army, if you will. Uh, so now we have the Chinook, the Blackhawk, the Apache, and the King Air, and then a couple of other VIP aircraft like Gulfstreams and stuff like that. But those are very, very few.
0: Yeah, and probably very senior and very hard to get in on.
1: Very, very hard to get.
0: I'm sure the life's not too bad though, flying the Gulfstream around.
1: <laughs> no, it is definitely not that hard at all. Fly to Hawaii and back or... Oh Germany man, and back. Yeah,
0: it's a tough life, right?
1: tough life. I'm basically. sure they earned it though. Yes, they really did.
0: So yeah. So even if you're in the army, you still have an opportunity to become a pilot by applying for this, right?
1: Absolutely. Cause I was in the army and I decided, Hey, I want to fly. So all I did was I went on the website, I printed off the checklist. I filled out all the documents that pertain to me. I emailed it in and then they had a review board. And two weeks after the review board, they emailed me saying that I was accepted. And it's as simple as that. It really is.
0: Nice. Would you say that there's a pilot shortage at all in the military like there is in civilian? Or do you think that they're pretty well staffed?
1: I would say in some branches. As everyone is seeing in the Air Force, they're having a really, really hard time maintaining their pilots, mostly because their pilots do more things than just fly. Their staff, they maintain keys for hangers, they maintain night vision goggles, stuff like that, other additional duties. Um, when a lot of people, they sign up and they truly want to be pilots.
0: They want to fly as much as possible. Exactly.
1: So... When they get pulled away to do other duties, um, then they start to look for other opportunities where they can purely just fly.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I've yet to meet a pilot that would rather stay on the ground than be in the air. Exactly. So I can imagine some mundane tasks like maintaining keys and cleaning goggles will not be the most exhilarating for them.
1: No, they much rather be flying the trip down to Cancun than back.
0: Yeah, do not we all? So say if someone wanted to fly in the military, does it help having prior experience or is it one of those things that they don't really take that in consideration? They would rather you train you the the right way from zero?
1: I would say that people in the military get selected more to be pilots only because they might have more resources at their fingertips. For example, someone who's just starting to fly to mom and pop airport and they want to be a military pilot, they might not know someone to go to in the military that can give them a letter of recommendation, whereas me as an air traffic controller, I already work on the military airport, so I can just walk down out the tower, go to the hangar, and start talking to pilots, and it's a whole lot easier to find someone to write the letters or recommendations.
0: Do you need a letter recommendation specifically from a pilot or anyone in aviation in the military? Can it be just anyone in the military?
1: So for Army pilots, you need at least one letter recommendation from an aviator. So that kind of inhibits some people from putting in their application just because they might find it a little difficult to find an aviator and then to get an interview from them.
0: I could definitely see that be an issue with someone civilian, because like you said, military and civilian flying are pretty well separated throughout America. I mean, we'll see each other at airports and we'll talk to them very briefly, but it's not like or you can sit there for for an hour and just chat, you know, because the military have such, like you said earlier, you have plus or minus 30 seconds to get to where you need to get. So you guys don't have much time to kind of just shoot the breeze and chat it up.
1: Absolutely. But I've definitely seen any time that a civilian pilot has talked to a military pilot Myself and all the pilots I know, I mean, we love to talk about what we do. We love to give any advice. We love to help out anyone that we can because we remember being in that position and saying, "Oh, I really wish I could fly that and feeling frustrated because we didn't know how to start. So anytime that we get a chance to talk to someone that wants to do what we do, we literally give all the information we can as quick as we can so they can try and start the process.
0: Right, I think it's one of those things just in aviation in general. It's the one of the biggest questions is how do you start? Where do you go? How do you find people in the industry to help you out and stuff like that? And once you figure that out, you're well on your way to becoming a pilot because that's one of the hardest ones is just how to get into this little small family because once you get in, it's hard to ever leave and people will be there to help you out. You'll have so many people offering you help and letting you know what they did or how they did it or how you should do it.
1: I definitely think the first step is actually understanding what you need to do and then after that all it is is just time it takes a lot of time to get where you want to go But the hardest part is just understanding where to start. Oh,
0: for sure. Yeah. I was talking with Kurt, it's episode number eight, and we're just talking about how if you're looking in from the outside of the aviation world, if you have no experience at all, it can be very kind of just seem like it's impossible to do. You're like, oh, certain people were made for aviation or certain people just were born into the family, but anyone can do it that wants to. And all you are, you're just one phone call away from going on your first flight. Like It's not hard at all, but it's just kind of breaking down the mental barrier where people think that should for certain people.
1: Absolutely. I think it's really intimidating for some people because they might fly to go see their parents during college for Christmas and they see these pilots flying this airplane and they're like, wow, that's so cool. But they don't know where to start. They don't know it's as easy as just walking into any flight school in all of America and just saying, hey, can you take me up in a plane? and getting a logbook and just start logging time. It's as simple as that.
0: No one in aviation is going to turn you down on a flight, especially in flight <laughs> school, because that's a way that they make money. So they would love to take you up.
1: Yes. I've never told someone, any of my friends or anything, they're like, hey, I want to go out for a flight. I don't think I've ever turned down a flight just oh, because no. I love being in the air.
0: Yeah, no, if I have the opportunity to go, I'm going to go.
1: Absolutely. It's so much more fun up there than it is down here
0: for sure. And then uh one more thing on the the military side, someone coming out of the military that wants to get in aviation. I've had a couple friends and people in school that were able to use their GI bill to pay for that. Does most everyone know that they can use that on flight school or is that kind of a a well-kept secret?
1: I don't think that the information is disseminated as it should be because after you get your private pilot license done, then you can use your GI bill for all additional ratings. So for your instrument, for your single commercial, multi-commercial, now the ATP-CTP program and the actual ATP, all of that's covered by the GI Bill.
0: Oh, wow. That's awesome.
1: Because it really helps out these guys who are getting out and they want a reliable job and career and income. So flying is a great way to have all of those things. And the GI Bill helps out with that.
0: How long does someone need to serve in the military before they're able to access the GI Bill?
1: So to get 100% of the GI Bill, you only need to serve for 36 months, which I haven't seen any contracts that are less than three years. So basically, if someone serves a contract, then they get a full four years of scholarship basically to use at a real college university or a vocational flight school or however they choose.
0: That's really cool. I mean, Three years might sound like a long time when you're going in to sign up, but when you look at the end game, when you're looking back on your life, it's like those three years saved you so much money because so many pilots are coming out of school now with not only the debt of their flight training, but also the debt of a four year school. So if you can come out on top on both of those, you're doing something right.
1: And the greatest thing is, if you sign up for those initial three years, you can be doing college while you're working your three year contract. Yes, you might not have as much free time. To go out on the weekends and party and do all these other things, but you're you're working for your career, working for your future. So if you really buckle down, you can knock out your entire four-year degree within that three-year contract, and still have your tuition to go take to vocational flight schools and get all your licenses.
0: Right. I know it's hard to tell someone that's in college or to tell someone that's 16, 18 years old to not worry about the partying and having fun yeah. and enjoying. I mean, you can still enjoy college, but if you truly want to be a pilot, the best thing possible you can do for yourself is devote yourself to your dream and to do it as fast as possible. It's like you will not regret missing out on all those times when you are 10 years into your career and you're making good money flying for the airlines or flying whatever you want to fly. But the sooner you get your ratings and your hours, is the faster you'll be able to proceed with your career. So it is so important to get everything done as fast as possible.
1: Absolutely, because I'm 24 years old. If I look back, I can't remember one party that I went to between the ages of 18 and 21. So in my mind... It's honestly like I didn't even go to any of those parties because I can't remember them anyway because it was so long ago.
0: Maybe there'll be one or two parties I'll remember for the rest of your life, but that one party on Thursday night was not worth you missing that solo cross country you could have got with the good weather.
1: Exactly, or knocking out that midterm or final or homework assignment or something that you could have been doing to further progress your career.
0: I played sports in college and I had full time school and doing aviation. Oh, it was nice. really hard for wow. me to kind of balance everything. and. I actually only got my private pilot license in school, and then I went back to Charlotte, North Carolina in Part 61. I did my instrument, my commercial, my multi-engine commercial all in like a year. So I was able to knock everything out really fast, and it helped me out so much to... Just to start my career,
1: you must have had a lot of time management skills to be able to do that because that's a heavy course load. For There's sure,
0: more of a, when you play football in college at the Division One label level, you really don't have a choice. <laughs> You're told where to go, when to go. Every single day, you pretty much get a schedule, and if you don't show <laughs> up, you, you will fully regret not showing up on time. They will work you. It's. I'm not going to say it's like basic training or like the military, but when Coach Meyer took over at Ohio State when I was there. We were out like an hour and a half, it was 15 degrees outside, doing bear crawls, hanging from pull-up bars, doing lunges, just like a bunch of bodyweight stuff, just to mess with our mind, just to tear us down so they could build us up into what they wanted us to be. Wow,
1: that sounds really intense. Yeah, no, it
0: was pretty intense. But yeah, after stuff like that, it was very hard to want to go out and fly when my legs were just completely dead and I'd make tons of excuses. So if I could go back and change it, I would still try to fly as much as I could.
1: Absolutely, because that's the most critical thing is building hours as quickly as possible.
0: For sure. So I have this rapid fire section that I'm going to go and ask. It's just a couple of questions, nothing too hard, but uh, just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Awesome. All right, so what's your favorite airplane?
1: I would have to say the L-39 Albatross.
0: Ooh, nice. No one's ever said that one before. I would agree with you. That's a sweet plane.
1: I would love to fly it so much.
0: What's your favorite airport you've ever flown to? It could be military. It could be civilian. It could be... uh, class bravo or whatever
1: i would have to say it's probably destined fort walton kdts just because they have so many great planes there and i was really fortunate to fly a 1946 t6 out wow, of there
0: no way that's awesome
1: it was the most amazing airport i've ever been to
0: what's the f- your favorite aviation instagram account to follow
1: oh my favorite one wow
0: <laughs> you can list like a top three if you want
1: I will probably have to say Drizzle would be one of them. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: I'm sure that's everybody's favorite. Yeah, a lot of people uh, say
0: I'm the Drizz.
1: <laughs> I would have to say uh, my really good buddy, Carl's Bad Pilot. He's yeah. another good one to follow.
0: Yeah, I've been following him for a while, so it's kind of cool to like, get to talk to him when I've been following kind of his progress and his path for a while.
1: Yeah, to kind of see how he goes through uh, his trials and tribulations. <laughs>
0: yep, for sure. <laughs>
1: And then I would probably have to say my third favorite is uh, Aircrew Crew Life, okay. just because he's the military pilot. He also does the airlines. So it's like the best of both worlds.
0: Would you prefer longer trips or short trips? So what I mean by longer trips or short trips, I mean like the distance from an airport. Would you rather fly for four hours or do you rather fly for 20
1: minutes? In a helicopter, I would rather fly the 20 minute route instead of the four hour route just because there's not a lot of room to wiggle around and like build a nest, if you will, in the seat. Oh yeah, being comfortable is very important. Yes, but for <laughs> for an airplane, I don't mind the the long routes. Just because if I'm going on a long route, it's probably going to the beach or to the mountains or somewhere enjoyable.
0: Yeah, no longer routes and planes are. I prefer them as well. Kind of, you can kind of sit back, relax, think, just enjoy the country and where you're flying. And now I fly on-demand charter for freight, so it can be kind of interesting with the weather we have to fly through. But whenever it's a nice day, I'll take long routes any day.
1: Absolutely, build the flight hours.
0: We're all building flight hours. All right, would you rather fly over cities, mountains, country, or a beach?
1: I would definitely say over beach, just because I did all my flight training here in north carolina by the beach so i just have so many really cool memories flying down the beach right alongside of the helicopter tours and myrtle beach wilmington and just hanging out with all the beach goers and them waving and you waving back it's a really good experience
0: and here's one for you if you weren't a pilot or an air traffic controller, what would you want to be?
1: If I wasn't in aviation, I would probably have to say that I would be in some kind of business or marketing job. Okay. Because I've kind of flirted with that. Um, I took the GMAT, I applied to MBA programs, and that was a big passion of mine. But then I had to come to the realization that I truly love flying more than anything in the world, and I don't think I could sit in a cubicle when i could be flying in an aircraft
0: i know right yeah when i was taking classes at ohio state i was just like there's no way i could do this for the rest of my life like this just seems (laughs) so boring and then once i started to fly i was like yeah there's absolutely no way this is what i'm doing
1: (laughs) exactly it's so exhilarating it really is
0: it is It's just so cool that this is your office and this is what you get to do for the rest of your life
1: an office with a view can't beat that that. that's
0: for sure all right here's one for you do you like piper or cessna better
1: first of all i would fly either. But I would have to say that I'm more of a Piper fan just because all of my training was in a Piper. So I've gotten so used to flying a Piper. It's literally like a third hand to me.
0: For sure. I've flown probably a good mix of both of flown. I've flown I have a lot of time in a Piper Aero, a lot of time in a 172, a lot of time in a Cessna 310, a lot of time in an Aztec. Wow. But I would say they they're, they're both have different purposes and they both do things well and they both kind of struggle at things. So I think they're both pretty even. All right, here's one for you, and uh, you can't say the albatross, so you have to change uh, it up. But what's a plane you've always wanted to fly?
1: Oh, what I always wanted to fly could it be airlines as well? Yeah, any plane. I would say the Airbus three thirty.
0: Okay, nice. Any reason why?
1: I feel like it's a great plane. Um, some people might think that it's not really agile. It doesn't get to actually do like pilot things, but I feel like the locations it gets to go, I I would definitely do that. The long calls it gets to go on. sure definitely build time really quickly no
0: yeah i think uh the equivalent of boeing would be similar to like the seven the triple seven or stuff like that and that's one of my favorite planes as well if you could do it all again is there anything you do differently would you train to be a pilot at a younger age so you had more experience going into the military or did you like how everything kind of played out
1: if i could do it all over again i would definitely do it a little different. I would start training as soon as I could. I would try to solo by 16, and then I would try to get my private pilot probably by 17 instrument, 17, and then hopefully commercial by 18, just so I could get a head start in the game because I didn't start flying until I was, I think I was 19 years old when I started flying. So I can only imagine where I'd be right now if I started when I was 15, 16 years old and then just taking it from there. And I
0: actually, I lied to you. I have one more question for you. This might be a hard one to answer, but if someone comes up to you today and they want to be a pilot, but they're torn between being a civilian pilot and a military pilot, would you recommend them go to the military or would you recommend them just do civilian?
1: I would definitely have to know kind of what their end goal was because I feel like being a military pilot is very rewarding because you're doing missions that impact lives every single mission. So if someone had the potential, I would definitely tell them go to the Air National Guard, fly for the Air National Guard and build up enough hours, two, three thousand hours, put your application in at Delta, United American, get picked up with them and truly live both lives as great as you can.
0: Awesome. Well, cool. Well, yeah, that's great information and it's a great way to look at it and to go about that because like you said military and civilian flying are completely different and you kind of got to know what the end goal or what makes someone beat kind of figure out what they want to get out of life and what they want to get out of flying i agree well cool cody and uh you are on instagram correct
1: yes i am captain underscore snoopy
0: all right captain underscore snoopy is there any reason for the snoopy is that what your nickname is in the military or you just love snoopy
1: yeah so it was a really funny story um My grandpa, he uh, always carried around like a a stuffed animal Snoopy around and it was his big thing. And then uh, I started flying and it was kind of like passed on down to me. And then ever since then, it's definitely been a good luck charm Uh, on my military helmet, my helicopter helmet. I have this Snoopy Velcro patch.
0: That's awesome. that,
1: That I wear and... To this day, I've never had an accident, so uh, it's definitely a good luck charm to me.
0: That's really cool. It's like a little rabbit's foot. That's really cool.
1: It is.
0: (laughs) If anyone wants to follow you, it's Captain Snoopy. He posts some cool stuff. Military, civilian, his life, everything. Go follow him. It's a great page. And with that, we pretty much covered everything. Cody, I thank you for... Coming on to the podcast, I think that your experience with military, civilian, and even air traffic control is kind of, it's pretty much like a triple threat. You can offer (laughs) advice to anyone that wants to do anything in aviation. So thank you for coming on. You really gave some good information and I appreciate it.
1: I really appreciate you having me because uh, it was a great experience and it was really good talking to you, Justin.
0: For sure, man. Thank you so much and I hope you have a great day.
1: All right, see you, man.
0: And that is a wrap with episode number 10 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes, comment or DM us on our Instagram page at Pilot to Pilot. If you're interested in coming on the show or know someone that you want to be on the show, email us at pilot to pilot HQ at gmail.com. We're looking to tell everyone's story. So it doesn't matter if you have five hours or if you have 10,000 hours, email us, let us know. We'll get you on the podcast so we can share your story as you never know what your story can do or help someone get into this awesome career. Aviation I hope you guys have a great day. I hope you're out there flying. I hope you're out there building your hours. Next week, we're going to be releasing I Am The Drizzle. It's a highly anticipated episode and I can't wait to share it with you guys. With that, that's it. And I hope you guys have a great day. Happy flying.